start recording. Um, so uh, you can see on the outline that we want to try and tackle three uh, questions. First, what is a god? Which maybe sounds like a silly question, but is uh, I suspect a better question than um, than at least I realize. And then we want what is a Christian and what specifically. Uh, is a Lutheran. Following that, we'll have six weeks where we'll try and tackle the major parts of the faith uh, in the small catechism. Uh, so those six chief parts that Luther lays them out, kind of the very basics, and then we'll have uh, a week break because I'll be gone uh, a week and Tuesday, and then we'll do one week of review right at the end of September and kind of see how see how this goes as an eight-week kind of briefer session for a, for a continuing education um, discipleship new member class uh what have you so um first what might be helpful to do is for everybody to go around the room and just introduce themselves uh and if you could if you just say um as much as you're comfortable what kind of church perhaps you grew up in what church experiences you have and and kind of a little bit of uh of your background so i'll start obviously i'm uh, pastor freudenberg i grew up in uh lcms churches so i grew up the whole bit going to the Lutheran Day School, the Lutheran High School, and I didn't go to Concordia because I I grew up an hour and a half from Seward and I didn't want to go where all my friends were. So uh, I went far away to a non-Lutheran school for, for college, and then I went to seminary and graduated uh, four or five years ago. So I never really have known life apart from the Lutheran Church. Um, but my college experience was very good, uh, and I had a lot of great interactions with Christians who are not Lutherans who taught me uh, a lot about the faith, so that was really, um, really positive. So, Gene. Uh, well, okay, yeah, Gene uh, Valaya, and uh, uh, member here at uh, church. And I guess I'm probably, as far as a member goes, I'm fairly new. I've been, <laughs> yeah. been here about five or six years, something like that. So, uh, but uh, I grew up in a Catholic home, and uh, uh, had the opportunity to do go through all the Catholic stuff. Including the older boy and, and uh, the the uh, sisters and and all that kind of stuff. I go through all kinds of stories. But I won't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, uh, grew up in a small town in Iowa, a farming town up there, about 600 people. And uh, went to uh, visit my uh, wife's mom and dad, and. Uh, to talk to them about marrying her, and the first thing out of her dad's mouth was, "When are you taking adult confirmation in the Lutheran Church?" <laughs> you want to know the answer to that first. Well, uh, my wife told me what to expect. So, well, we were in college. We we were going to a Lutheran church there, and I was already taking adult classes because, as she said, he, he's going to ask that first. And if if you say I don't know, if this isn't going to work. Or, if you say I'm already taking it, then it's probably going to work. So, uh, so that was way back in when we were born, we were married in '72. So, uh, so it's been a been a short ride, it seems like, but 50 years uh, was our celebration this year. So. Sure. So I'm, I'm glad to be here. Uh, so I'm pastor when, when I was at Hobbs. I was an elder out there, and uh, <clears throat> out there the, uh, uh, the elders would go to. The confirmation classes, and because uh, the parents would be there and things like that, and and, uh, and I thought, you know, it's not going to hurt me to, to sit through. Recording that. in progress. Uh, and uh, and so I really enjoyed it. Then when I saw this in the in the bulletin, I thought, you know what, that that uh, that session that I went to with the 
uh, confirmation class out there. I enjoyed it so much. I think heck, I got, there's some more I can learn yet. So that's why I'm here. Very good. Thank you, Jean. I'm Sharon Delmore, and um, I grew up, uh, my father was a missionary, so we grew up in a mission field, um, always Lutheran, but um, it seemed like the emphasis was more on Christian and not so much the, the, the Lutheran stuff. And I didn't really know the significance of Missouri Synod Lutheran until I came to, nurse, to uh, Lutheran Hospital School of Nursing. And that's when it was like, well, are you Missouri Synod Lutheran? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think so. <laughs> you know? so anyway, um, so I've, I've enjoyed, I mean, I, I cherish my Lutheran background, um, but uh, there's just always more to learn about how to, uh, how to be a disciple, you know, in the community and with your own family even. So um, I just want to know more about how to, how to make that important to others. Make sure. Right. Um, I grew up Missouri Synod, and I understand as far as the different or whatever. Yeah. It's a big deal when you're a Missouri Synod anyway, it seems like. Uh, right? Um, anyway. That's I what grew. I found out. Yeah. So... But anyway, we just, uh, or I just joined the church in, I don't know, a month ago or so, or two. Yeah, June. Yeah, 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 something like that. This church, anyway. We moved from Kansas City. So, you're next. <laughs> Patty, by the way. Patty. Uh, my name is Tim Pounds. Um, I was born and raised in the Catholic Church, uh, Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, one year to Catholic um, college, then got married in 73 uh, to my first wife, uh, to preference that, we were married. Uh, she passed in 85, or in 15, and then I met Patty, um, and I hadn't been going to church a lot, we sort of got disgusted with the Catholic Church there for a while, so hmm. we just sort of quit back then going to church, so I really didn't have a you know, other than occasionally we'd go to church, you know, but uh, then I met Patty, um, um, and, and so I, you know, I started going to, you know, church with her um, in Kansas City, and uh, sort of, you know, going to church, it sort of, you know, had my, got my faith in God a little bit you know, uh, better. So um, when we decided to get married, uh, I did go through some uh, classes with the pastor there in, in Kansas City. Uh, he married us. Um, we moved here in a couple years ago and been looking for a church for a while and um, never could find the right one until you know, we came here. Here we are. <laughs> That's my background. Julie McKenzie. I was born and raised in northwest Iowa in a small town, West Bend. We had a few more people than Jean did, though. We had about a thousand. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 was, I said six hundred. I was sort of stretching it, too. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
four taverns and two churches. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was baptized in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod there, and then, um, well, like about fourth through eighth grade, we had what's called Saturday school. You know, during the mm -hmm. school year, we'd go to the church on Saturday mornings and get our religion, you know, study and learn up until confirmation. A confirmation was always on a Palm Sunday when you were in eighth grade, so I got confirmed, and then I got married in the Lutheran Church, and I moved, my husband was from um, around Columbia, Missouri, so then after I got married, I moved to Missouri, so, and I'm looking forward to joining the church here, and I like, uh, I just like to keep studying, too, like everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, Daryl Shelf, I, I born and bred, maybe bleed Lutheran Church. <laughs> uh, it, it really wasn't a choice. My parents were, my ancestors were. There's mm -hmm. numerous Shelp missionaries mm -hmm. down in Brazil and in all over the world, really. So mm -hmm. I was stuck uh, <laughs> and, and glad I'm stuck there. So um, went to parochial high school in Concordia, Missouri, close mm -hmm. to Kansas City, mm -hmm. uh, St. Paul's College High there. And um, then decided maybe I didn't want to be in the ministry or teaching, so I got a business degree, and I figured God needed good lay people too. So, uh, anyway, got married, have a couple boys, uh, one grandchild, soon to be two. So Facebook tells me. Facebook. <laughs> that's, that's a whole. Facebook story. told me. Yeah. <laughs> we were told to keep it quiet, but. All of a sudden, face pastors yeah, on Sunday. Facebook's what? Facebook's hey, what? <laughs> How do you know? I, mean, I wasn't supposed to know. But uh, anyway, so, uh, I've been married for 40 years, and uh, we're happy to be here. And I'm hoping to remember what I forgot, learn what I didn't pay attention to, and enjoy the fellowship of being with you guys. Um, so I'm Kate. Um, I grew up in St. Peter's, and my family went to a Methodist church. It was kind of a weird deal. Um, my dad's family is really Catholic, so my uncle is a Catholic priest, and they're very Catholic. My mom's family is very Baptist, and so there was conflict. So it's like they chose Methodist, not because they thought that that was, like, the best. They just wanted to keep the peace. So, yeah, I grew up there and was Methodist um, up and through college, I guess, and when I came back from college, my family kind of fell away from the church, and so I just tried different churches, and I was, I don't know, just kind of looking, kind of like you guys said, you know, for the right fit, and I was in non-denominational for a while, and then, I don't know, just, they have so many good things, but I was like, I think I need to find something more, like, set, I guess, with, like, we believe this, um, and anyway, about that time, I ended up it was during the pandemic and I was looking to volunteer and I ended up, the only place that would let me go was actually right next door to this Sunrise uh, Senior Living. And mm. I met um, a lot of Christians there and there was just a couple that like really stood out. Like they were just different and they were all Lutheran. And so <laughs> then I would drive by the church like every week on my way home. And I don't know, I just yeah. thought I would try it. So sure. yeah. Cool. And Linda? Yes, my name is Linda Leach, and um, I'm actually doing this via Zoom because I've been sick, 
and it's the best way for me to strengthen my relationship with God and that's to um, participate in these lessons that I need to be refreshed on. I uh, grew up a Lutheran, uh, have always been a Missouri Synod Lutheran. I've never wavered from that, but I have wavered from regular Sunday church visits and I would say have had you know an inactive membership I've spent years since I was diagnosed um, doing my own devotions and um, pretty lengthy you know prayers and and uh, catechism and um, you know, reading the Bible and listening to Bible stories and singing songs and doing my best to worship alone, but uh, it's not enough, even though I believe that I am saved because I do believe that Jesus Christ is my Savior. And uh, so... I have just been on a mission to work harder to improve my relationship with God and try to fulfill whatever plans he has for me before I leave this earth. And it's just been quite a journey and this is part of it. I'm so happy to be experiencing this evening and hopefully the following eight weeks. We're glad you're here, Thank Linda. You. Yeah, absolutely. Can you hear everyone okay, Linda? Sorry? Can you hear everyone okay? Yes, I can. Okay, perfect. The mic is doing its job. Can you see the screen that I'm sharing with you right now? Yes, what is God? Where is a Christian? Okay, perfect. Okay, perfect. So um, that's all working well then. Good. Well, glad. Thank you, everyone, for sharing. That's um, helpful to know. And um, always, you know, keep in mind your background and everything and where where we've been in our journey and where God is, is, is taking us. And of course, this class has no obligation to, to become a member or anything like that. It's more um, just continuing discipleship is what I prefer to call it because uh, as Daryl mentioned, you know, we all need to review the basics of what we once learned. Um, again, Luther said he could never really exhaust, um, exhaust the catechism, exhaust what he had written here. So um, speaking of that, why don't we just take a quick look at this and explain uh, a little bit of what's going on in the catechism. Even if you have, um, someone here has a copy of the most recent one. Um, so this was printed in 2017. And as you look at the catechism, um, you'll see that the uh, first, how do you say it? How many is it? The first 39 pages, uh, the first 40 pages, I should say, are what Luther wrote. So, what Luther wrote in 1529 is his small catechism, and the catechism is basically just a teaching tool. Uh, what ways can we kind of try and reduce the totality of the Bible 
uh, all the New Testament together, all 66 books, in what ways can we reduce that and make it easier to understand what the message of the Bible is in some 40-odd pages? Um, so Luther writes uh, the 40 uh, pages that we have in the beginning next to see the explanation of the small catechism, which is a something the Missouri Synod wrote uh, for use has been going back to 1943. So Daryl and, well, you didn't grow up in the in the LCMS, but you, Daryl and Sharon, you probably used the, and Julie, you used the... that one I brought, so it was published in 1943. 43, that's yeah. right, okay, yeah. so 43. That's how old I am. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 40, 43, yeah. And then was the Baltimore Catechism. Baltimore Catechism, right, the Catholic Catechism, right, the Baltimore Catechism. And, um, and Patty used the the 43 one probably or the the 86 one as I was thinking they didn't it have would have a, been 43 then. okay yeah, yeah they didn't have a revision until yeah. 86 and that's when I was raised and then they did this one in 2017 so everything after page 40 is not what Luther wrote it's what he wrote interspersed with commentary and scriptural helps and everything else uh, like that so you can see on page 43. The first question, which is not written by Luther, but part of the new edition in 27, the first question is, what is the Christian faith? Um, so that's a helpful thing to note as you perhaps look through this and as we use it. Uh, we'll primarily be looking at what Luther wrote, and what he wrote is very helpful because it's short and memorable. Uh, and if you grew up like I did, you had to commit it to memory, uh, which is very helpful, actually, because then you say, you know, what does it mean that Christ uh, Christ shed his blood for me? He purchased purchased and won me not with gold or silver, but with his holy Precious blood. blood, and it's innocent. Bitter suffering death. death. right. So you remember it. Case in point, right? Uh, and that so the I way of... his own and live with him in his kingdom. His kingdom, yes, exactly. So you actually inscribe those things on your heart. Uh, and so we, we know that there's a problem when you memorize something, uh, but don't pay attention to the meaning. But memorization is actually really, really good. Uh, and so there was one translation of the catechism, I can't remember what it was, that wasn't as easy to memorize. And it was very heavily criticized for that because it was more of a direct translation than kind of a poetic, <coughs> sing-songy translation. But memorization is kind of what Luther has in mind because not everybody can afford a catechism. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1529, the printing press is just kind of really starting to take off, so you really have to write things to be heard and memorized more than to be uh, written and read, uh, if that makes sense. So as we go through the catechism, do just keep that in mind. Uh, if you turn to something like uh, page 188, for example, uh, is a good uh, good example of what Sharon just mentioned. So on page 188, you see that box there that says the second article, part three. So it's part three of the second article of the creed. And what Luther writes is this, what does this mean section? So that bolded section, that I may be his own, live under him in his kingdom, serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he has risen from the dead, lives and reigns through all eternity, this is most certainly true. That's what Luther wrote. Immediately after that is all of the synodical explanation that was first published. That was six years ago in 2017. Um, the central thought, you know, our lives are meaningless without some sense of purpose. Uh, what do people live for today? Uh, on and on. Any questions about uh, this book, the catechism in general, why we would have or even use a catechism? 
One analogy I've heard, which I think is helpful, is uh, the analogy of a map to the land. If you think about the land, any kind of land, whatever it is, before the day of GPS, if you're going to just go out and explore, uh, you're more than likely, if you're like me, to just get lost. Um, and not know where you're going if you're just going to wander out and try and find your way. Uh, so a map is a condensed version of the land, right, that helps you find your way through the actual land itself. So in that way, the catechism is a bit like a map to the Bible, uh, saying when you're going through the land of the Bible, when you're searching through the Bible, whatever it might be, then use this as a map to help you see what's really important, what the most significant highlights of the land uh, are. So I think that's a pretty helpful analogy to kind of keep that in mind as to why we have a catechism, why we kind of teach and use the catechism, and why uh, it's still useful today. And of course, the Catholic Church has a catechism. So the Baltimore Catechism, and that is, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, a condensed version of the really large catechism of the Catholic faith. One I had was lar large enough. My mother was going through that with me every night. I'll tell you. Okay. That. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The the interesting thing to me about the catechism is, although it's a, a lot of statement of faith, mm -hmm. it's not a book in its own. It's always pulling its information from the Bible. Mm -hmm. Right. So right. so when you. That? When you say the Apostles' Creed on a given Sunday and you say, that, that, that line doesn't make any sense, you're able to go to the catechism and, mm -hmm. and find, well, biblically, here's where it came from. It right. Was, it's referenced from 1 Thessalonians 5 or something like that. So it's always back to the Bible, which mm -hmm. I thought was really helpful when I was trying to understand what this whole thing meant. Right, right. So in Luther's, uh, in Luther's section because he's dealing with, you know, kind of an oral culture where not everybody has a Bible, he doesn't include the references because he's trying to make it as short and memorable as possible. Well, we have a culture in which everybody can own a book. So if you want to know, uh, that's a great example, you want to know where it's talking about the creed, uh, specifically the person of Jesus that we'll talk about a bit tonight, um, you can say, you know, on page 164, for example, okay, so Jesus is God and man at the same time. Well, how in the world does that work? Where in the world, where in the Bible does it say that? Um, so then you look at page 164, and it, it is focusing on that section. I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. Well, where does it say that in the Bible? You look at the following page on 165. Okay, we confess Jesus is Lord uh, from Romans 10, Colossians 1. Why do I confess that Jesus is my Lord? And on and on. So it'll be a really helpful resource to have all of the biblical passages um, for that that part of the Apostles' Creed, in this case, uh, listed right there. Linda, if you have any questions uh, ever, don't feel shy about shouting out uh, and stopping me. <laughs> um, okay. I'm fine. Sure. <laughs> Just let, let me know. I can't. I'm sharing my screen, so I can't see. Uh, I can't see your screen right now. So I think I think there's a way that you can possibly. Um, oh, do half and half. Maybe that might be beyond my technological capabilities. I think if you have if there's an option for you to click somewhere or something, it might alert me somehow on the screen that you have a question. But um, mm -hmm. in any no. case. 
You just tell yeah, me and let yeah. me know, and we'll go from there. Okay. No, I was just thinking about my days uh, learning the catechism, and um, I failed to mention that my dad was a Lutheran minister, and so we we uh, had a lot of family daily devotions, and um, were expected, you know, to to memorize everything, and I just remember just being amazed really how Luther um, really just stood up against the way that um, Christianity was being taught and, Mm -hmm. you know, just the reliance on mostly uh, baptism maybe in the the, uh, sacraments, but not really um, enough emphasis on um, the commandments and the creeds and, and everybody was doing their own thing then and you know and, and thanks to him um, things really became more uniform and, and families and churches and schools had something standard that laid out what should be taught and what needed to be learned and what needed to be um, relied upon and that's kind of how I view the importance of the catechism. Yeah, it really was. He um, he has his kind of big, if you know the, the history of the Reformation, all he has his big kind of here I stand moment at the Diet of Worms in 1521. And he kind of is uh, almost ideal, idealistic and too optimistic about how easily things will change. Oh, if we just give the people the gospel, it's all going to change. and Everyone's going to know it. It's going to be magic overnight we're just going to water everything and it's going to you know spread the water of the gospel and god will cause the seed to bloom and a few years later he he visits all of these different uh churches he and his uh some members some other members of the clergy visit all the churches in the area and they find that nobody knows anything (laughs) and nothing's really improved by his his 10 years of reforming and so uh he writes the catechism to really try and teach uh teach everyone the the basics of the faith what um, what we need to know. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so we'll, uh, any other questions, just feel free to interrupt me. Again, I, uh, if you've been to Sunday my, my morning Bible study, you know it's a pretty open forum. Um, I will try and be out of here, I would like to say, by done by 8. Again, if you've been to Sunday morning, you know that won't happen. <laughs> so I'll say 8.10 or 8.15, and uh, I'll try not to cut the discussion short and be here as long as it's useful um, and if the discussion is, is going well. Uh, any other questions? Otherwise, let's turn to the, the outline that you can see there on your screen. And uh, um, The first question we want to ask is not just what is the Christian faith, which is a good question to ask, but who or what is a God? Uh, in perhaps what we might say is a culture that is largely dispensed in one way or another with belief in God. Um, <coughs> once you can predict the weather 10 days from now, what need do you have of God? Uh, which sounds a bit uh, flippant, but there is some truth to that. If, uh, if we didn't know th- about the rain cycle and we were uh, restricted to just praying to some kind of deity for rain, well... Uh, it's a lot easier to believe in some God when you don't have that scientific knowledge of how the universe works. So um, who or what is a God? Before we go to the Luther quotation there, any, uh, maybe that's a silly question, but any first thoughts or comments about who or what is a God? 
What you put your faith and hope and trust in. Spoken like a good Lutheran, Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, so that is a, that's a really good answer. What you put your faith and hope and trust in. So in that definition, then, atheists would have a God. If they hope in, trust in, have faith in something. Mm-hmm. So if that were to be true, what might the God of an atheist be? Money. Money, yeah. <laughs> so that could be a very, that could be a very good, you know. So if what helps you go to sleep at night is the fact that you have a certain number in your bank account and that gives you... Uh, you know, money can give you some kind of security. Uh, that can certainly be a god. You can trust in trust in money. Um, anything else? Themselves relying on themselves. Right. I mean, I we did a Bible study on Exodus one time, and just the emphasis on God wanting His people to rely on Him. Mm-hmm. And and he wants us to rely on him, so we can still learn about that. Right, right. I think. Yeah. So rely on money, rely on yourself, or right. I trust in myself, which you know might be a good thing, depending on where a person is. But you can also see how it might be a very, mm-hmm. very negative thing. People who are coming from broken families, where they they grow up learning to trust no one, mm-hmm. uh, and so if they they grow up with a distrust of their father or mother often that gets translated upward to God, right? So I know I've mentioned this before, but very famous atheists, Friedrich Nietzsche, some others, often have significant issues with their fathers Mm. for one reason or another. Um, And I think there's a natural human psychological tendency to translate from parents upward to God. And what we assume or think of our parents, we uh, Mm. naturally apply that to God. Mm -hmm. And if our parents were... um, Crummy. Crummy. <laughs> yes, if they were crummy, it takes some undoing, actually, for people to, especially with the way that God describes himself as father. Hello, sir. How are you? Would you care to join us? I was just saying, so you can push it up. And, uh, uh, why weren't you in men's Bible study? Why weren't you in men's Bible study? <laughs> <laughs> I'll write you a note. <laughs> See you, Brian. Yeah. So if your if your parents were crummy, you actually have to undo that, right? Mm-hmm. The kind of um, what do they talk about now? Generational trauma, mm-hmm. and those things that can take place. Yeah. Um, how do they get on that? Well, uh, money, trusting in yourself, right? And so it can be a negative thing of I don't trust anybody else. I only trust in in me. This kind of defensive, mm-hmm. guarded position that many many have. Uh, anything, any other thoughts on who or what is a god? Maybe something we serve? Yes, and something we serve uh, is a good way to put it, implying that all human beings have to serve something. Yeah, you probably have a human need to serve something, whether you know it or not. Uh-huh. Yes, yeah. Uh, right, right. Yeah, I think that's fair to say that human beings were built for something. Mm-hmm outside of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, what political philosopher was it who talked about a state of nature? Was it John Locke? Who always talks about a state of nature and if man were just on his own? Well, that's never been the case for man. Man's always mm-hmm. been in community of one kind or another. So you serve the community, you serve other people, you serve some kind of higher power. Um, and if you don't think you do serve something else, 
then you might really have a problem. Because <laughs> yeah. if you serve yourself at the end of the day, that's not, uh, not going to be very good for your soul, obviously. Uh, anything else? So what's interesting is in all those definitions, then we're not necessarily in this case talking about God as the creator of everything, though he certainly is, but we're kind of taking a ground level look at how view, human beings view view God and what insight that might be. And so, uh, Sharon, I don't know if you, have you read the Lord's Catechism? Um, maybe a long time ago. <laughs> No, it's, it's, yeah, I'm old. So it was a long time ago that I had confirmation, and I know I haven't go. read it since then. There we go. <laughs> well, in, in the large catechism, as you can see on point A on your outline there, what Luther writes, the large catechism is a larger version of the small catechism where he gives more scriptural citations, more notes, things like that. So what does he say about the first commandment, you shall have no other gods? A god means that from which we are to expect all good, and in which we are to take refuge in all distress. So to have a God is nothing other than trusting and believing him with the heart. Uh, I have often said that the confidence and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. If your faith and trust is right, mm. then your God is also true. On the other hand, if your trust is false and wrong, then you do not have the true God. Um, pretty insightful comments um, from Luther and we'll get to perhaps a few of the reasons that he wrote that and what is true of his life and biography that would lead him to write that um, so uh, question two we've kind of been talking about this already what do so many have their faith and trust in it could be money uh, it could be themselves it could also be what we would call higher values something like mm -hmm. justice um, which of course justice is a good thing but if we have our uh, well, does anyone know what President Obama had written in the Oval Office uh, when he was in office? Probably something to do with hope. No, although that would make sense because that was mm -hmm. one of his uh, yeah. his kind of catchwords was hope. Um, he had uh, oh gosh, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Hmm. I think was what he had written in the Oval Office carpet when he was in office. I, th mm. and I think that might be from Martin Luther King. Mm. Um, and of course Martin Luther King was, was a Christian, but we can, uh, some people may not be Christian or believe that God, as we believe God really exists, exists, but they still believe in some kind of justice or eventually the universe is going to have justice. Um, other people might believe in um, something like ecology, or the environment is the highest value, and you get these kind of extreme forms of environmentalism that say the worst thing that happened to the earth is the human beings who pillage the earth of its resources, so it'll all be better when, when we're extinct as a species and, and Mother Nature can take over. Um, so that might be a, a kind of a, of a god. That's obviously a very extreme example. Um, but money, and I tried to get at this in the Sermon Sunday. I'm not sure if I did it. You'd have to tell me. But, but what we value is often what we spend our time on. Mm -hmm. So I value Husker football, which has been a really bad investment <laughs> for the last, the last six years. I don't know what I'm thinking of there. That's been uh, not, uh, not something good to value. Um, so uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that Husker football is a god. <laughs> but it could be. I'm sure it was in the 90s for many people, right? And they had good reason for it to be at that point. 
Well, um, sports can be a god. Yes. I mean, how many kids or families don't go to church on Sunday because that's when their ball games are? Right. Mm-hmm. So. Trevor. Yes, yeah, Linda. Oh, um, as I was listening, I was just thinking about um, my own life. Uh, it, I, I believe that I put my career sure. in front of God, mm-hmm. and um, I, I thought it was a good thing that I was self-reliant, and I thought it was a good thing that I was considered myself. But by my but myself and others thought of me as the problem solver, and mm. I um, got caught up in that. Yeah, and it, it's kind of what what I I lived for the promotions and the salaries and the uh, responsibilities, and um, uh, it definitely. I never thought of it at, at the time as being uh, more important to me than God, but I lived it that way. I, I lived my career, um, uh, you know, uh, hmm. I put more emphasis on, on my time sure. in my job and my career than I did on my faith yeah. and in my yeah, well, thank you for sharing. That certainly can be um, a kind of um, God. And I think it was, uh, I think John Calvin, who was kind of a reformer a few years after Luther, said something along the lines of our hearts are kind of idol factories. <laughs> you know, um, not I-D-L-E, but I-D-O-L factories that kind of constantly churn out false gods that we want to believe in or that we want to put our, our time and really emphasis on. And of course, careers aren't bad. Money's not bad. Being self-reliant to an extent isn't isn't bad in and of itself. But it's easy as human beings to kind of lose lose perspective on on that. And, and you know, back back to what you were saying before about sports, mm-hmm. I immediately started thinking about music. Mm-hmm. And and like, what's the next song that's going to drop? And what kind of shoes are they wearing? And I got <laughs> I got to buy those and. and the same with athletes, you know, what kind of right, you know, so cel- celebrity in general. Yeah, whether, yeah I guess that's yeah. it. It just made me mm-hmm. think of that real quick about you know right. how, how that there are some people that that uh, that's something that mm-hmm. that's what they live for. Right, you know, uh-huh. you, you hear about these guys that got two thousand pairs of you know, Nikes or something. Like, oh, what? <laughs> but those are gods that don't satisfy. Yeah, you're always you know you're always yeah. reaching. I guess. So I why know. do you think human beings? want to have a God that, okay, they understand or they create, but they're not satisfied by that God. When we have a God, who, if we just re- let go and rely on him, he can satisfy us. You know, satisfy is a good, that's a good word. Mm-hmm. Again, that makes me think about, my wife likes to watch these shows about orders. Yes. She's got a couple friends of hers that... Or kind of that oh, way, and that's that's what that's what yeah. they would do is just uh-huh. yeah. had to keep accumulating, right? And that seemed to satisfy them. Mm-hmm. But it also 
You need more. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. So I don't know. Or there's, you know, there's a quote about, I, I can't remember if it said, it's a 12-step program AA quote about first you take a drink, then you take another drink, and then the drink takes you. Mm-hmm. Eventually it just takes, it takes over and it keeps taking from you, right? So there's only mm-hmm. one God you'll serve that will actually give to you instead of taking from mm-hmm. you. Everything yeah. else requires, um, mm-hmm. requires a sacrifice, right? Whether yeah. it's your money to get the Nikes or your time or whatever else it might be. Um, which when we get to the Lord's Supper, we're kind of talking about Jesus reverses all of salvation history, right? So through the Old Testament, God requires sacrifices to teach people of the severity of sin. And then Jesus comes along and flips the system on its head, I think intentionally, of course, in God's plan of salvation. And now through the Lord's Supper, the sacrifice of Jesus himself is given to us. So whereas people used to have to give the sacrifice and bring that to the temple, offer the sacrifice to be in the presence of God, now here in the Lord's Supper, Jesus is is feeding his people. So you can see, you know, all gods take something from you, time, money, whatever. Only the true God uh, actually serves you, you know, and gives himself to you. I think we're programmed to think we have to give. We have to do. If we get something for free, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Well, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? Right. Um, and that would be, we'll kind of get into law and gospel, but that would be the human, the necessity of living, and, and Daryl is probably sick of hearing of law and gospel by now, because <laughs> of what we just did on Sunday morning Bible study, but uh, the, the necessity of, of human, human life under the law, uh, and that that is the way that we think of a kind of zero-sum game, right? And it's only through God where we're actually, there's actually a surplus. Right. And that law could never be satisfied. Yeah. I mean, you know, people in right. the Old Testament, they got to think, man, what, I got to do this. I got to do more of that. And right. Not, I don't understand. Yeah. Getting anything back from it except getting beat over the head. Right. You know? Right. Right. <laughs> so, what, what Jesus says about the law is, you know, he actually intensifies the Old Testament law. You must be perfect. And then everything he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so, yeah. Uh, of course, but of course, he satisfies the law in our in our place. Uh, okay, so then we'll go on to we'll try and this is about par for the course. We're fifty minutes in, and I made it through point one. <laughs> Just the way it goes uh, with me. It seems like all right. Uh, so assuming everyone has a God, then how do we know the one true God? Well, a, a couple different ways. One is that the most primary way is that God actually takes the initiative and reveals Himself to us. So. God reveals himself to us in a couple of different ways, through his word, um, through the Bible, but also his works in history for his people. So uh, theologian Robert Jensen said this, which is pretty profound. God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having before raised Israel from Egypt. Um, So God is that being, that person that raised Jesus from the dead, having before raised Israel from Egypt. So God is not just an idea. God is not just far away in heaven, but God is one uh, who is the creator of all things, but has actually entered into human space and time, both through Jesus and in raising Jesus from the dead, having before uh, raised Israel from, uh, from Egypt. So uh, who is God? How do we know that we have the one true God? Well, God is the one who actually takes the initiative uh, and reveals himself uh, to us, not merely the highest of all human ideals. I'm on point for letter A, or a nice idea, he is the one who reveals himself to us. I guess I repeated myself there. Um, 
So then one of the ways that we hear of that happening is in Exodus 3. So since so I'm not talking as much. Does somebody want to read that section from uh, Exodus 3 there in uh, number 4 point B? Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Right. So here's a perhaps dumb question. What does that mean? <laughs> or how is, you know, well, I guess start with what does that even mean to say I am who I am? That tells me that's past, present, and future. I am. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. I yeah, am. absolutely. I, I was and I am. Right. I was, I still am. I, I is. <laughs> now I got myself yeah, I is. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so there's a totality to who God is that transcends our kind of human limits of space and time. Didn't that mean something to the Jewish people? That word, that statement, I am... That means something to them? Never mind. It surely meant something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As to what that is or what you're referring to, I, I know. know. It doesn't come off the top of my head. This is also okay. where God reveals his kind of personal name. Mm-hmm. So if you put yourself in the in the shoes of somebody in the ancient Near East, or I mm-hmm. guess perhaps the sandals of somebody in the ancient Near East. <laughs> and you know, you don't you're not really sure about the cosmos or what's up there, but you see a big giant ball that seems to go through the sky. Right, and when it's out, it warms up. And what do you know? When it's out for a lot of times, it seems to mm-hmm. uh, cause perhaps things to grow even more. These dark things appear in the sky, and then and then water falls out of them, like it's magic, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're kind of trying to put that together of what is this? You might think, oh, it's it's random. Perhaps that's some kind of supernatural being in the sky. Uh, both the big ball of white, the sun that seems to travel across the sky, as well as the the magic, dark, fluffy-looking things that magically pour out rain, right? Pour out water for us. Uh, those might be pretty good things uh, to worship. And so you make up a name. So I want to call that a cloud. I want to call it the sun. Now I'm going to worship the sun or the sun god or Ra, as they know him in Egypt, of course. Or I'm going to worship the god of rain. And you kind of just randomly assign these things. So in this scene from Exodus... God is actually giving a personal name and saying, I choose to make myself known to you. This is who I am. Uh, and furthermore, that name is not just a, a kind of title. Um, so we might have, you know, if you think of a president, it's not just a title president. It's actually, uh, in the case of our current president, Joe, right? So, so God comes down to, to Moses and says, here I am. I am Joe, <laughs> to put perhaps too fine of a point on it and make too colloquial of an analogy, but um, you kind of see the, see the point there, right, of saying it's not just some idea, it's not that he's some unknown God in the sky, it's actually personal uh, and, and known. Uh, any thoughts or comments or questions about that? Um, so God takes the priority in revealing himself and making himself known so we don't have to just guess about him. Uh, 
in the case of Exodus and all through the scriptures. Um, there's a quote there from Stanley Hauerwas, who's a theologian at Duke, and to your point, Sharon, about uh, we create gods that we want to control, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So if God is our possessions or money or even sports, well, we have some amount of control over that. If my God is Husker football and I don't like the coach and I have millions of dollars, well, I can pay to, to buy out the previous coach, right? And I can at least have some level of control. But of course, our God, who is actually the creator of the universe, doesn't really uh, work in the same way, even though he does, of course, hear and answer our prayers. So what does the end of that quote say? It is as if, I'm kind of in the middle of point C, I'll scroll it down a bit for you, Linda. Oops. Thank you. It is as if God is saying to Moses, tell them not to worry. Just as I have been there for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just as God was intimately involved with the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so I will be there for you. In effect, God is saying, you can trust me, but you cannot possess me. So we could spend a whole Bible study on that you can trust me, but you cannot possess me. Yeah, so God is not ultimately uh, at our whim. And yet ultimately that's a good thing because God is God and, and we are not. Um, which is uh, a hard thing to wrap your mind around, or at least for me it is. But that's, uh, yes. Any thoughts, comments, questions about that? So if we're keeping track of, of how we're uh, how we're kind of putting this all together, everyone has a God of some kind. How do we know the one true God and have faith in him? God actually is the one who takes initiative and reveals himself to us. He did that in the Old Testament through um, relating to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, calling them by name, as he says, being there for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He did it significantly and especially in the life of Moses and the people of Israel calling them out of their slavery and their bondage in Egypt. And he did it most significantly in the person of, of Jesus. So what is a Christian? A Christian is one who has faith and trust, not just in God the Father, we would say, uh, but in the crucified and risen God-man, Jesus Christ. The fullest revelation of God in a twist of human history comes in a Jewish man from Nazareth, of all places, which might be like saying... Uh, the full revelation of God came from Bob in Iowa. No offense to our Iowans here. <laughs> but I spent my time in Iowa for three and a half years, so now I get to throw it under the bus all I want. I think I've, I've earned the right. Uh, being from Nebraska, now I can do that, lived in both places. Um, and so you have to kind of recognize what the response to Jesus is by many of these people, right? They say, are we sure that Jesus healed these people? Isn't that Mary and Joe's kid uh, from down the block? Is it really true that the full revelation of God uh, could be found in this man from Nazareth? And, of course, that's uh, in the mystery of God is exactly uh, what happens. So what happens? Jesus comes. He calls his disciples. He does his three works, uh, uh, three years, excuse me, of work and ministry, healing, forgiving sin, all those he is crucified at the hands of evil men, raised again. And so we hear the first, one of the first confessions of faith of the church, uh, what the church believes at the very beginning from Acts chapter 2. Would anyone, someone care to read for us uh, section B? I'll, 
I'll read it, but if I don't have my glasses on, but I'll give it a shot. <laughs> we can blow it up on the screen for you. <laughs> uh, 5B? Yep, 5B. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Uh, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Very good. So, so Jesus, this man attested, uh, mighty works and wonders and signs, delivered up according to the plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Uh, and so this Jesus, uh, whom you crucified, God has made him both both Lord and, and Savior. Um, so this is the first, original, most basic confession of the church of what it means to be Christian, is that Christians are those who believe uh, that that Jesus is Lord. And everything that, that, that those uh, three words, or those two words in Greek... Um, uh, Jesus Kyrios, those two words contain multitudes, obviously. How is this Jew from Nazareth, how is Jesus from down the block the very creator who uh, made all things at the very beginning? And that's uh, what the church spends the first 300 years trying to figure out. They believe it, uh, that Jesus is Lord, the problem is how do you articulate that? How do you assert that in a way that's helpful? Uh, which is where you eventually wind up uh, with with creeds that will study. Creeds are a basic way to summarize our belief in, in God. So the Nicene Creed comes out and um, they produce that in 325. So around 300 years uh, after Jesus is on the earth, they produce the Nicene Creed. Um, so the original confession of the church, Jesus is Lord. Uh, you can see this quotation, we don't need to read this from Matthew 16, but of course, uh, this is the question of who do you say that I am, which is really the, the, the most important question of what it means to be a Christian, is what do you make of Jesus? Um, which we could perhaps do a little bit of uh, religious affiliation troubleshooting and ask that question of, different religious groups and say, what do you make of Jesus? So, um, for example, Islam. What does Islam uh, make of Jesus? Prophet. Yeah, so he's... Can you say more about that, Daryl? Uh, he was a good man, did good things, but he had knowledge that most people didn't, so he was a, he was a great prophet. Right, right. So he was he was a great prophet and just a good man. Nothing, nothing more. Right. Um, so even though uh, Islam and Judaism and Christianity all share a common root of the Old Testament, they're all Abrahamic religions. Um, nevertheless, the real fundamental question is: What do you do with with Jesus of Nazareth? Who do you say that he uh, he is? Um, and in fact, when Islam started in the 7th century, so the 600s, it was originally treated as a Christian heresy. Mm -hmm. That is to say that they're just getting Jesus wrong. Mm -hmm. 
and eventually it kind of developed into a, an entirely different religion all, altogether, we would say, but um, treated as a Christian heresy in the first place. So we could you could apply that to any number of groups. Um, the, the Mormon, I guess I won't call it a church, but my understanding is that, that Latter-day Saints, Mormonism will regard Jesus as similar, a prophet in the way that we can kind of all be prophets and all be godlike or all divine. Right. Um, uh, any other thoughts, comments, questions there? I just want to say that I, you know, I've always been puzzled, but I've never really bothered to research it. Um, I just don't really understand why Jesus was not really accepted by the Jews. Mm -hmm. And you know, and I, I know that some, just the other day I saw somebody on TV who is Jewish and then he made a point of saying that he was a Christian Jew. Hmm. And, you know, I, I've been thinking the last few weeks about studying that more because I, I, I just don't understand why they didn't accept him as the long-awaited for Messiah that we were all promised yeah that's a good question um and of course some do and did in the book of yes. acts when they're when they're going around and preaching much of that is in synagogues and it's really after the destruction of the temple in 70 a.d so maybe 40 years after jesus dies that that's when you have the the kind of fully separated now we know jews and christians are are two uh two different religions we would we would say in our parlance as opposed to okay these jews over here they just don't know about jesus yet right and you kind of see that conflict in the book of acts when paul is often thrown out of the synagogues and he goes to preach uh assuming that yes these are faithful jews and they should be able to hear the message but of course um jesus brings with him so many challenges not the least of which is opening up uh I will be careful with how I phrase this because I don't want to give the wrong impression. Opening up the kingdom of heaven to all nations and not just the nation of Israel. And letting Gentiles in. And food laws aren't important as you read about in Acts 9. And I think those kind of cultural standards for the Jewish people and the nation of Israel that had so long existed are not easily thrown off. Um, imagine going to Germany today and saying, okay, you, you should follow Jesus. And the way you do that is you not have Oktoberfest anymore, right? Or something like that. Um, what's a, I mean, could you get rid of toasted ravioli from St. Louis and not have an uprising? I don't know. Um, I don't think toasted ravioli is all that. Anybody like it? Anyone want to vouch for T-Ravs? Daryl? You have the right sauce. It's yeah. great. I, well, okay. I really like Emo's Pizza, and I think I was the only person at, at seminary who liked Emo's Pizza. Mm. Patty is not a fan. Tim's not a fan. Okay, well, oh, man. you got to get used to, to the ruin, cheese. Ruin Way to ruin a pizza. Way to ruin a pizza. The cheese is kind of strange and tangy, yeah. and I don't know. It's, it's, it's uh, like putting Velveeta cheese on it. That's exactly pizza. right. That's oh. what makes it delicious. Put cheese on there. Uh, no. <laughs> it's like eating something that, I don't know, came out of a freeze pack for astronauts or something. It <laughs> seems to me, Pastor, that the Jewish, a good portion of the Jewish nation at that time, Jesus did not represent their expectations. 
yes. to be the Messiah. Yeah. He either didn't agree, like you said, with the r- rules and regulations. He was throwing out the old laws. Yeah. He was teaching them a new message. And they they were convinced that that's just not the way it's supposed to be. And so mm-hmm. they said, that can't be my guy because I didn't want it that way. That's a very helpful helpful comment. So what were their... You know, you, you mentioned, Linda, how could they not see with the Old Testament? How could they not see the suffering servant of Isaiah, for example, in the person of Jesus and what happens? Well, um, their expectations for something perhaps like political reign or rule or somebody to throw off the Romans, mm-hmm. right? And that's what the Messiah will look like. That's what he'll do. And, you know, he didn't do that. Instead, he actually got killed by the Romans, right? And we, of course, see how God works through, through weakness, Mm-hmm. And what we as Lutherans would call the theology of the cross. Um, even the, even in the return to Bethlehem thing we did for 25 years here. Yeah. The rabbi, I think, in that scene, he was saying, oh, he will come with great horses and he will yep. run the Romans away and we will be free to do everything we want to. You know, it was, it was visitors were hearing all this from the rabbi. And then a small child would come up and say, the rabbi is wrong. Right. <laughs> come come with me and I'll tell you the real story. And then they would go sure. to another scene. Sure. And so uh, yeah, they, they expected a king. They wanted yep. they wanted another king to lead them out of Roman Empire into their great paradise. Uh, right. That's kind of right. a general in charge of the uprising. Yeah, general in charge of the uprising and somebody to lead us in, into glory, which is a great observation, not just about Jesus and the Jews historically, but also for our individual lives, which is do we expect God to work and speak to us through our suffering <laughs> at our weakest, lowest moments or in our glories? And do we expect following Jesus to always be a matter of glory and unto glory, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis, um, author of the Chronicles of Narnia, said something along the lines of God whispers in our greatest moments but he, he screams in our silence or in our pain in our pain so god's really trying to get a hold of us in and through our pain and that's something to do with the mystery of how god has has chosen to work um which for one reason or another you know and as you mentioned it, the jews many of the jews we should say couldn't see it of course others did hear and accept the first christians were largely you know jewish yes. believers yeah yes i understand that um, okay, so I want to leave a few minutes for questions, and we're at 807, so I'm going to just walk through a few things, uh, and we'll review these about Lutheranism in particular. We could have eight weeks just on the history of Lutheranism and what it means to be a Lutheran, and um, you wouldn't really want to get me started. So we'll walk through this and review it at the beginning of next class, and then, and then uh, have any questions that you might have for next week. So early Christians are received... Uh, many of the Roman Empire, so not Jews, but the Gentiles in the Roman Empire, view them as fundamentally atheistic for worshiping the emperor as divine. So the accusation against the Christians from the Romans is that they're atheists, funnily enough, because they won't worship the empire, they don't recognize the gods, and this comes to, the Christians come to be blamed for the fall of Rome in 410. Uh, and they say, well, if only those darn Christians would have worshipped God, we wouldn't have had the situation, even though at that time the, the Roman Empire was officially Christian. Uh, many of those who were still pagan in one way or another were blaming the, the Christians for worshiping, uh, uh, for not worshiping the emperor. So to look at this uh, this little drawing here, 
to the point about what their expectations were be would be. This is graffiti from what might be the first century, so before 100, or as late as the 300s on the Palatine Hill in, in Rome in Italy, um, called Aleximenos worships his god or his, his ass, his donkey. Uh, you can see that the donkey mocking Christ is being crucified. Hmm. And the, uh, the mockery here is saying how absurd it is that Christians would worship somebody who does not come in power or glory, but instead lays down his power and glory as we understand it and allows evil men to crucify him. Um, so that's a very, so here's the original graffiti on that. Uh, it was discovered, I think in the 19th century. So in the 1850s, they're renovating something, you know, discover this piece of graffiti that they can date back probably 1700 years ago. Uh, oh, he looks like him. he has a tie on. He's a fancy donkey. No, no, no. I'm talking about the the guy. The oh. <laughs> I mean, he looks like he's got a necktie on. Um, yeah, that could just be a gouge in the in, in the, the stone okay. that was later. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, this could be some this could be some ten year old here. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, like like kids do. Yeah. Um, but that might be how they are perceived as atheistic or worshiping, mm-hmm. worshiping the crucified one. How foolish is it? So. Um, then to talk about what Lutheranism is in particular, of course, you've kind of touched on Luther. 1517 is the famous, and if you want to, you know, take your history lesson, you can look at that plate over there. That has a few events from his life. Um, 1517 is the famous nail the, nail the theses into the door. 1521 is the Diet of Worms, kind of the here I stand moment. Uh, and then 1529 is the catechisms. Uh, Luther dies in 1546. But before he dies... In 1545, he writes uh, writes this about his experience in the 15 teens, as it were, of his struggles with God. So Luther was kind of a, today we would call him, I don't know, maybe manic depressive or something like that, um, which may or may not be helpful to identify him that way, who, who knows. But he would spend all night confessing his sins. Right, so he was so worried, he was so anxious that he had these sins that he couldn't get rid of, uh, that God was going to judge him for this, and all of that, um, that he became very disillusioned by even the thought of God. So at one point in 1545, a year before he dies, he says that he did not love, no, he hated the righteous God that punished sinners, that if all God is is this righteous king in the sky who is going to hold us all accountable for our sin and send us to hell anyway, no matter how hard we try. Well, he hated that God. Uh, But then through reading Paul's letter to the Romans, he kind of discovers uh, that Scripture wants to give him a gracious God, that God indeed reveals himself uh, as a gracious God. So he says, At last, meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again, had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. So Luther describes believing this very angry God, but then through the through the book of Romans, uh, sees that God is ultimately uh, gracious and merciful and wants to bring people into, into his presence. So um, that's Luther's experience. So next, next week, if we want to look through this uh, in this coming week, uh, what is a Lutheran 
That's a good question. Yeah. Why do many think it's very important to be in the Missouri Senate? That <laughs> kind of thing. Um, we'll talk about that. And if you're looking for uh, extra homework, as it were, uh, you could review the introduction to the catechism on pages uh, 43 through 51. 43 uh, through 51. You want those memorized? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> no you, won't, you won't get in the room next week unless you're able to yeah. say no, it. No, no tests. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing memorized. So, um, I think next week we'll start in on the Ten Commandments once we've kind of covered what exactly a Lutheran is. Thoughts? So we are going to do number six next week. Yes. Thank you. Are you interested in doing number six next week? I am. I don't understand <laughs> the term evangelical. So. <laughs> well, you know, evangelical is a slippery term. Um, because what does it mean now? So we'll wait till next week. We'll wait till next to week. To be continued. It's and a cliffhanger. I should, I should. It's a cliffhanger, right? I should stop <laughs> myself before I give any more. But it, it's a slippery term now because it means something very different in the last. It does. Thirty to forty years. I know. Um, but most Lutheran churches, this church is Daryl. You would know this is not Lord of Life Evangelical Lutheran Church, is it? Officially on any tax records? I don't think so. Okay, so. The church I served in Sioux City was started in 1935, and that was Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church. And I'm guessing that by the 70s, they stopped doing that because it got confusing. Mm -hmm. So our church started in 76, right, Daryl? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm guessing they stopped doing that because at that time, in the 70s, evangelical meant something different. Mm -hmm. So, in any event, uh, any thoughts, comments, questions, uh, critiques? Sports scores or the like. <laughs> I will make one comment. The brownies yes. are really good. No, I got to get one. Yes, yes. absolutely. <laughs> thank you, Patty. Sure. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Very good. Well, let us uh, let us pray. Everything was. You're able to hear everything, right, Linda? Yes, I Very can. Good. Okay. Well, let us uh, yes. let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the time that we have had. We thank you that uh, you have claimed us as your own, and that you want to reveal yourself. Uh, as a God who is abounding in steadfast love and grace and mercy towards each uh, and every one of us. Lord, we pray that you would keep uh, this fact of Christ's crucifixion uh, to pay for our sins, his resurrection to give us new and eternal life. We pray that you would keep this fact uh, always in front of our minds. And Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our, our Father, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For that is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, you former Catholics learned that kingdom and power and glory thing pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Stop the share there, Linda, and I will uh yeah, we'll come back. See you next okay. week. Yes. All right. Thank you very much. Good Take night, care. everybody. Yeah. Good night. Place there, or you good. Good. No, we just, we just go in the summer. Uh, it's like, I don't know, an easy vacation is not far away. Recording stopped. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's home.